Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I'm still hanging in there. Um, the days still blend together. I really don't know how we're already this far into 2021. Um, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is definitely a thing. Anyway, today we finish reading the plays of Plautus. Say that five times fast. The plays of Plautus, plays of Plautus, plays of Plautus, plays of Plautus. With Rudens, or The Rope. Uh, This play is, no surprise, undated, but the language suggests that it may be from later in Plautus' career, so I guess it's a fitting place uh, for us to end. Alphabetically, it came last of the undated plays, but it also may be one of the later ones, so there we go. Um, It is also different than all of the other Roman comedies that we have read so far, sort of. I mean, we still have stock characters and everyone is still, you know, Greek, um, or at the very least, they are not Roman because proper Roman would never do any of these things. But our setting has changed. Rudens is set by the sea. Mr. Todd, that's the life I covet by the sea. Mr. Todd, I just know you'd love it. You and me, Mr. T, we could be so... Sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Sondheim. I can't resist. Um, although, um, come to think of it, I'm, I'm not sure there's actually that much of Rudens and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, speaking of Sondheim. Other than, you know, general influences that we've already seen from other plays, those stock characters, some of those stock um, scenes, you know, the the plots tend to repeat, don't they? Anyway, um, where was I? Right, by the sea. Rudens is not set in the city. You know how we have one exit to the forum and one to the, you know, port or the shore? Yeah, apparently we have taken that latter exit. So our three upstage entrances are a shrine of Venus on one side, a cottage on the other, and the seashore in the middle. It's not some alleyway or another house. It's it's the shore. Um, we are we are by the sea. Um, and And one of the exits, of course, goes to the city instead of going from the city. Serini, um, in this case, is the city, and that happens to be on the coast of modern-day Libya. So we are not in Greece at all. We are we are not in Europe. We are in North Africa, um, which, I mean, the Mediterranean world, it, the reason I describe it as being the Mediterranean world is because all of all of those um, civilizations and and nations that lined that coast that that touch on the Mediterranean they all interacted with each other um, so we tend because I think because the United States is so big that we tend to think of things as being very far apart and things are a lot closer to each other in that Mediterranean world than than it's easy for me as an American to imagine even though I have lived in Rome I know how close things are there but it still feels like it should be really far away but it wasn't in the ancient world these these cultures interacted with each other so but but they were different I mean they were still different so that'll be an interesting question to think about whether the story that we're going to tell, the fact that it is not in Greece or Rome, that it is, that it's in Libya, that it's in North Africa, matters. I don't know. You can decide. 
<laughs> the cast is the usual mix of stock characters. Our prologue is delivered by Arcturus, a star personified, of course. Uh, the house on stage is owned by Daemonis, and his slaves include Scaparnio, Turbalio, Sparax, and Grippus. Placidipus is our love-struck man. Uh, he's not necessarily a young man, but he fills that role. Um, and his slave is Tracalio. Placidipus is in love with Pilastra, who was owned by Labrax, and, along with another courtesan named Ampelisca. Labrax is friends with Carmides, and finally, the priestess of the temple, Venus, is Ptolemocratia. The cast is rounded out with some unnamed fishermen because, of course, we are down by the sea. For the final time, I am working from the Henry Thomas Riley translation, along with several supporting sources that you can find in the show notes. Um, I don't know if I've ever really mentioned that. You can always check the show notes for my references. Occasionally, I do work solely from whichever translation of the text that I've read or, or that I own, but most of the time, I, I do look at at least one or two other sources. At any rate, the translation that I read is the Riley one, and I'm very happy that when we start Terrence, as we can finish comedies, that I will have modern translations of Terrence to read. Anyway, so with this background, we will take a short break before going through the plot of Rudin's. play begins with Arcturus coming down from the sky to deliver the prologue. After a lengthy introduction of himself, he gets to the point. Daemonis lives over here in this cottage, right by the sea. He's old. He's originally from Athens, but he lost all of his money because he was too nice to people, and so he's decided to live in exile. And before all of that, Daemonis' daughter was kidnapped by a procurer who brought her to Cyrene. A young man from Athens, who was now going to school in Cyrene, saw her and decided he was in love, so he gave the procurer 30 minae to purchase her. Not that the procurer had plans to do anything except take the money and run, because he had a Sicilian friend who also wanted to pay for the young woman. The procurer, his friend, and more than one of the procurer's courtesans, including Daemonis' daughter, set sail for Sicily. Arcturus, of course, saw this was happening, um, you know, because he's a star and he was up in the sky, and he was furious with the procurer's behavior, so he sent a storm. The ship didn't get very far before it wrecked, and that is where we will all, we, and that's where we'll see uh, the play begin. After the storm, we don't actually see the storm, but that's where the play starts. Arcturus then wishes the audience well, and their enemies ill, and he exits. Scaparnio enters. He grumbles about the storm and comments on the damage done to his master's house. Placidipus enters along with a few extras. He tells the extras how he's looking for Labrax, who told him that he'd be at the Temple of Venus. Demonis enters and greets Placidipus, and Placidipus tells Demonis about Labrax and these two young women that Labrax owns. They all get sidetracked watching the remains of the shipwreck. Placidipus sees where two men have washed up on shore and runs off to help them. Scaparnio gives a play-by-play -play of how the rest of the survivors are tossed on the waves before also washing up on shore. Daemonis reminds Scaparnio about the work at hand, namely repairing the house, and they all exit. Pilastra enters. She describes her ordeal of being taken to a strange country and then getting shipwrecked to make things worse. 
Ampeliska enters from the other side of the stage, bemoaning not only being shipwrecked, but having lost her only friend. Each woman hears the other's voice, and eventually they are reunited. They see the temple and decide to throw themselves on the mercy of the goddess, and they kneel on the steps. Tolemocratia enters, having heard the voices of the two shipwrecked women. She is happy to help them, but she warns them that she is very poor. Pilestra and Ampeliska don't mind, and the three women exit into the temple. Some fishermen enter. They talk about their daily schedule and then cross to the temple to do their due diligence in honoring Venus. Tricalio enters. He runs over to the fishermen and asks if any of them has seen his master, Placidipus. They tell him no, and they exit. Tricalio mutters that Labrax has lied to them. Clearly, instead of meeting Placidipus at the temple for breakfast, Labrax has run off with the women instead. Tricalio decides to ask the priestess if she's seen either man. Ampeliska enters. She's been sent to fetch water from the cottage next door. Tricalio recognizes her and asks what's happening at the breakfast between Labrax and Placidipus, because, of course, if Ampeliska is at the temple, then the two men must be there as well. Ampeliska is thoroughly confused. She explains to Tricalio how she and Pilestra were shipwrecked. Labrax had intended to take them to Sicily, but then there was the storm, and surely now Labrax has drowned. Pilestra is most distraught over this course of events, not because they are sure that Labrax is dead, but because Labrax had a little box with trinkets that would allow Pilestra's parents to recognize her, and that box went down with the shipwreck. Tricalio exits into the temple to try to comfort Pilestra. Ampeliska crosses his Tidemoni's hut and knocks. Scaparnio enters. He decides that he is in love with Ampeliska, who he's only just met. And she responds, as you would expect. It's uncomfortable. I'm sure that the ancient Romans, and probably some much more recent audiences too, found this scene to be hilarious. It's not. Um, Eventually, Scaparnio tells Ampeliska to let him prove his love by fetching the water for her. He takes the pitcher and exits. Ampeliska twiddles her thumbs and looks around while she waits. And she sees Labrax and his Sicilian friend down on the shore. Realizing that they have survived the shipwreck, too, she runs back to the temple to hide. Scaparnio returns with the pitcher of water. He decides that maybe Ampeliska was playing a trick on him and that he's going to get in trouble for having this pitcher that belongs to the goddess. So he exits into the temple to return it. Labrax and Carmides enter. They are both soaked from having been shipwrecked. They argue over whose fault it is that they got caught in the storm and bemoan the fact that Palestra and Ampeliska are surely drowned. Scaparnio enters, talking to himself about how the two, there are two young women in the temple clinging to the statue of the goddess for dear life. Labrax overhears and asks for details about the women. Not knowing who Labrax is, Scaparnio answers. Labrax exits into the temple. Carmides grumbles about how he has nowhere to go and asks Scaparnio for help. Scaparnio offers to trade clothes so that Carmides will have something dry to wear. Carmides thinks that Scaparnio is trying to rip him off, so Scaparnio exits in a huff. Carmides sighs and follows Labrax into the temple. Demonis enters from his house. He soliloquizes briefly about this dream that he had, but he's interrupted by a loud noise coming from the temple. Tricalio runs out of the temple and throws himself at Demonis' feet. He begs the old man to help him. There are two innocent women inside the temple who a procurer is trying to carry off. This is an insult not just to the women, but to the goddess whose protection they have sought to boot. Demonis calls into his house for Turbalio and Sparax to come and help them. These servants enter, and they all exit into the temple, save Tricalio, who listens at the door and provides color commentary. 
Thylaester and Ampeliska burst out of the temple. They are relieved to see Tracalia, who tells them to sit at the altar of Venus, which all three of them do. Demodes enters, followed by Trebalio and Sparex, dragging Labrax. The men argue over who has the right to the women, who don't get a say in anything because <laughs> they're just women, am I right? <laughs> and Demodes instructs Tracalio to go find his master, which is to say Placidipus. Tracalio exits, and then Demodes and Labrax argue some more. Placidipus and Tracalio enter. Placidipus is furious that Labrax tried to run away with his, which is to say Placidipus's woman. Tracalio is, is sent to the shore to fetch Placidipus's friends. Placidipus then orders Labrax be dragged off to court, at which point Labrax calls for Carmides, who enters. <laughs> Carmides thinks this turn of events is just fine, thank you very much, and does nothing to help. Placidipus tells Palestra and Ampeliska to wait at the cottage with these nice people, and they exit. And then Placidipus leads Labrax and the various extras off to court. Carmides decides that he might as well go along to, you know, be a witness for the prosecution. Daemonis enters. He gives a brief soliloquy about how happy he and his wife are to play host to these two young women, and wondering where Grippus, his slave, has gone to. He went out fishing last night and hasn't come home yet. And then Daemonis goes back into his house. Grippus enters, dragging his fishing net by a rope, the title of the play. And that fishing net contains, well, a wallet or a bag or something that inside has a box or maybe a little casket. Um, he's quite tickled by his catch because it is very heavy and therefore it must be full of gold. Tracalium enters and asks Grippus to hand over the wallet or bag or box or casket or whatever it is in the net. The two slaves argue and get into a rousing game of tug of war. Tracalio suggests that Demonis be asked to adjudicate the dispute. Grippus, presuming his master will take his side, happily agrees. Demonis enters, followed by Palestra, Ampeliska, and some extras. Each slave presents his side of why he should get the casket. And Tracalio reveals that Palestra was kidnapped from Athens when she was a little girl, and the casket holds the key to her identity. That settles it for Demones. Palestra recognizes the casket as belonging to her. They all open it up and look at what's inside. Demones, of course, recognizes the trinkets therein, and father and daughter are reunited. Everyone, except for Grippus, goes into the cottage so that Palestra can also be reunited with her mother. Grippus soliloquizes how he'll have to try that fishing spot again. Except it, it costs so much trouble... And he finally decides that it's best to go inside too until the desire to try to fish up more gold has passed. And he exits into the cottage. Demonis enters, still speaking of his good fortune. He calls for Tracalia to go fetch Placidipus from the forum so that he can be engaged to Palestra. Tracalio agrees on the condition that he can marry Ampeliska after he gets his freedom. Demones is happy to oblige. Tracalio exits. Grippus enters. He's upset that he found the casket and has gotten nothing out of it. Daemonis tells him that reuniting a family should be reward enough. Grippus sulks and goes back inside. Daemonis follows after another short speech. Placidipus and Tracalio enter. Placidipus has indeed granted Tracalio his freedom. They, take, um, they talk of the pending weddings and exit into the cottage. Labrax enters. He recounts how he has lost Palestra, but that he's determined to keep Ampeliska. Grippus enters. He and Labrax negotiate over the casket. Gr 
Grippus makes Labrax swear on the altar of Venus that he'll pay Grippus a reward for having found the casket. Grippus fetches Demones and the casket. He hands it over to Labrax, explaining that everything is safe except for, you know, the handful of trinkets that he has kept because they allowed him to identify Palestra as his daughter. Labrax is forced to pay up, but since Grippus is a slave, he can't actually get the reward, and Demones is given it instead. Grippus is given a token part of the reward uh, instead of getting the full amount. Demones invites both Labrax and Grippus to join the wedding celebrations, and the play ends. Arcturus is in Ursa Major, um, the Great Bear, the Big Dipper, and supposedly uh, was responsible for tempests. I did not know that. Something interesting I learned while reading this play. Uh, So anyway, so it makes sense that Arcturus provides the prologue to this play about what has happened after a storm. Um, My initial inclination, of course, was to compare this to Shakespeare's The Tempest. Uh, But as you've seen, it really, it doesn't have that much in common with the tempest other than i mean there's a storm and there's a shipwreck but i mean just even in shakespeare the number of places that have storms and shipwrecks is significant and only one of those is 100 percent based off of plautus we've already read that one about the menachme right anyway um so that I, I that was where i thought i'd start but it doesn't it actually does not doesn't make sense what what I do want to talk about is um, something confusing for me. And I don't know if this is Riley, if this is how um, other directors have interpreted it to try and make it make a little, I don't know, make more sense. I don't know. Um, early in the play, we meet Scaparnio, right? And he meets Ampelisca and falls in love at first sight. And one of my sources um, says that Scaparnio is the one who gets to marry Ampelisca at the end of the play. But in the Riley translation, it's Tricalio who asks for her hand. So I don't know if that scene really should be Scaparnio. I'm not working from the original text. I'm working from the Riley translation. So I don't know if this is one of those weird things where Riley kind of has gone off and does his done his own thing or if if the other source decided they wanted to carry on the that Scaparnio Ampelisca thing I mean the action that's taking place makes sense for it to be Tricalio to me but that final romance um doesn't doesn't fit with what we saw earlier but at at the same time um it's kind of nice if it is Tricalio because at least Ampelisca knows him. I mean, Scaparnio, we see she meets him and and he just goes for it and she rebuffs him as politely and gently as she can because she is a woman alone in a strange land, or at least what she thinks is a strange land. It turns out she hasn't really gone that far, but she doesn't know that. Um, so, it, you know, it, yeah, whoever... Whoever Ampelisca marries at the end, it doesn't fix the fact that the the conclusion of this play for the two women that we that we meet, it's icky. Um, and 
in most of the comedies we've read, our love struck struck young man is is definitely a young man, and his love is not unrequited. But um, we don't know really how old Placidipus is. Um, we don't see that much of him, frankly. Um, so we don't we don't get the relationships. We don't meet his father. Or we so we don't get those sorts of clues that really tell us that he's a young man who's just in love with this young woman who loves him back. We don't we don't really know how Palestra feels about Placidipus. Um, and she gets to marry him at the end anyway because he's in love with her. Um, and then the same thing for Ampeliska. She's going to be married to someone who has decided he wants to marry her, whether that is Scaparnia or Tricalio. She has no say. Um, the, they may now be freed women or um, have regained their status as freeborn women. But, and I, and Ampeliska, frankly, we, we aren't really given her birth status if she was freeborn as Palestra is. Not that it matters. Slavery is bad. People, period. We know that. But um, yeah, it's it's messy. The, the, it, it. So, you know, where, where we have part of the difficulty, of course, is that this is a play and we are reading it. And plays are not meant to be read. Plays are meant to be performed and watched and consumed through an audiovisual medium, um, not just through the page. Uh, which, I mean, yeah, page is great. It, it's it's a place where you can start, but it's meant to be interpreted on a stage. Uh, so undoubtedly, we are missing a lot of what might make this play funny, simply because it's it, it is not it is not intended to be read. Um, but still, we get a good picture of of these two women of Pilestra and Ampeliska and how they feel about their state um, and how they are trying to navigate a world that is not safe for them so is it funny yeah not particularly but it is an interesting snapshot and I guess in that way it maybe is a little bit more like Shakespeare's The Tempest than I originally said um I mean, that falls under what we call problem plays, right? And this is a bit of a problem play, too. It it has funny moments, but it has some stuff that just if you take a take a pause and look at it, you go like that. That's messed up. It's just not right. Um, so what do you think? What aspect of this play stands out to you? Pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. The link to my Patreon is in the show notes too, should you feel so inclined to support me that way. No pressure. In our next episode, we will finish reading Dererum Natura. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.